Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Alan Cumming, and welcome to my shelves. My shelves are sort of a museum of my life. I like to keep things from my travels that are, to me anyway, the very essence of the experiences I've had. Sort of portals, if you will, to a specific time and place. And the inspiration for stories and memories and musings. Here's an ashtray I stole from the Hotel du Cap in the south of France on the night that I hosted the Cinema Against AIDS Gala at the Cannes Film Festival and I was absolutely horrified when the auctioneer came on stage and told Jennifer Lopez she looked like an ostrich. Here's some skin products that remind me of my dermatologist who just a couple of years ago told me when I showed him a little red dot on one of my testicles that that was nothing more serious than a normal part of scrotal ageing. Yes. Here's a tin of mints from the 2004 Democratic National Convention in Boston that I attended as a delegate. That year, I saw Barack Obama make the speech that launched his political ascendancy. And I also spoke on a panel about arts education and was seated between, guess who, Ariana Huffington and Bill O'Reilly. Talk about a shit sandwich. Here's also my first mobile phone. Ah, there's the collar of my late lamented dog, Honey. Here's a belt buckle from the chef Rocco de Spirito that he sent me. It says stallion on it. Hello. Each item is the launch pad for a story. I think of myself as a storyteller for hire and a provocateur. And in each episode of Alan Cumming's Shelves, I'll not only be telling you a story, but I'll be also talking to a character from that story who I hope will join me in provoking, delighting, enlightening and entertaining you, the listener. And this week, I'm talking to Cindy Lauper. Oh my God, oh my God, did you just hear that? He calls me Cindy Lauper. Welcome, bienvenue, welcome. Cindy Lauper burst into all our lives in a blaze of colour in 1983 with her first album, She's So Unusual. And since then, she has definitely not rested on her laurel. She's so exciting and curious and amazing. She's obviously made loads and loads of music, but she's diversified. She's made electronic albums. She's written a musical on Broadway. She's also acted. She's done everything. She even did a show on Broadway with me. Today on my shelves, I'm looking at a pair of white leather gloves. Now, when I say white, they were white once. Now they're sort of a greyish yellow and they're all sort of crinkled up and sort of, ooh, can you hear them? <laughs> sort of crinkly and flaky. Um, but I wore these gloves uh, in the 2006 production of the Three Penny Opera on Broadway, in which I played Mac the Knife. 
So for those of you who don't know, the Three Penny Opera is a play with music uh, by Bertolt Brecht and Kurt Weill. Brecht wrote the, uh, the play part, Kurt Weill wrote the music. And I did it at Studio 54 in New York City, as I said, in 2006. It's based on The Beggar's Opera by John Gay, which was written in 1728. And it was first performed, the Three Penny Opera, in Berlin in 1928, and it first came to Broadway in 1933, but uh, it closed after 12 performances only. So I played MacHeath, uh, or Mac the Knife. He's the charismatic gang leader, he's a, a thief, a rapist, a killer. And the last time it was played on Broadway, before me, it was played by Sting, and then before him, it was played by Raul Julia. So no pressure whatsoever. <laughs> Yeah, so there's the famous song that opens the show, The Ballad of Mac the Knife, which has been recorded a gazillion times by various people, Frank Sinatra, Ella Fitzgerald, lots of people. But um, I wonder if any of you listening actually saw the production I did of the Three Penny Opera. And if you did, I wonder if you um, liked it. Because if you did like it, now you know what it's like to be in a minority. And I think that's something we all need to understand better in these troubled times. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't really one of my greatest successes, I think it's <laughs> fair to say. Um, but I really liked it. I really did. I thought it was really successful in what it was trying to do and also authentic to what I believe Brecht wanted the piece to do. So, you know, you can't hope for anything better than that. And as an artist, I think you do it for yourself first, and then you hope other people like it. But if you do it the other way around, then I think that way madness lies. I really do. But maybe that's just me. The reviews were what they euphemistically call mixed, which means they were actually really shitty. But occasionally um, there was a word like good in them, as in it was so good to get out of that theatre. Stuff like that. <laughs> and one review in particular actually presented me with a very interesting conundrum, both as a, a man and as a performer, because uh, this one reviewer said terrible things about my performance as Mac the Knife, but very complimentary things about my junk. So a little backstory on that. Um, the costumes were designed by the fashion designer Isaac Mizrahi. So you get the picture. And it was a very sexed up production. There was lots of uh, cross-dressing and sort of pansexuality. My gang members were all different genders and different sexualities. And, um, and, and then the costumes were very sexy. I, for example, was wearing like a black shirt open down to my navel and a big sort of diamond cross necklace. And I had big pecs at the time. I was going to the gym a lot. I did lots of pecky exercises. And then I had these big black boots and a black cummerbund. Now, actually, I would just like to say, I think the cummerbund needs to make a comeback as a fashion item because it's stylish. It also covers up a multitude of sins. Do you know what I'm saying? Everything gets tucked in. Everything gets pulled back. Um, in an area where, you know, as the years go by, we need uh, both of those things to happen. And interestingly about a cummerbund, did you know that the cummerbund actually uh, comes from India and it comes, the name of it comes from the Indian word kamar, like kamarbund, which means waste. 
So a cummerbund is a band for the waist. And I'm all for it. I also, I had like a black mohawk. I had an earring. I, I had these big black boots. And I had the tightest, tightest black trousers known to man. Like so tight, you had to make a decision. Do you know what I'm saying? Boys, you do. Incidentally, I always decide to go to the right. That's just, that's just how I do. I, I Left in politics, right in my penis direction. Anyway, so this reviewer said that it looked like I had a tea set down my pants, right? <laughs> and I thought two things about that. First of all, I thought, number one, I want to go and have tea where he has tea. And number two, what? So I hope you can appreciate the dilemma I had when I saw in print my craft that I'd been honing for decades being denigrated. But then a couple of lines later, seeing my penis being venerated. And you know what? It all evens itself out. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to try and try these gloves on again. Oh my gosh. It's, it's wow. And my hands got fat over the years. Oh wow, actually, the heat of my fingers going into them, it's sort of they're sort of coming back to life. Wow, that's amazing. They're all kind of getting all supple again. It's as though I'm injecting collagen into my crinkly old gloves. Wow. Isn't that amazing? The heat of my body has made them live, live, I tell you, live. So the plot of The Three Penny Opera, it's basically set in gangland London. It's about these poor people, desperate at the bottom of the ladder, who are like beggars and killers and everything. And there's this sort of mafia-esque family called the Peachums, Mr. and Mrs. Peachum. And they have a daughter called Polly Peachum. And Mac the Knife, who's me, he's another sort of, you know, uh, gangland leader. And he uh, is their enemy. And he marries uh, Polly Peachum, kind of in a way to piss them off. And um, it's, this, it's this show about, you know, betrayal and kind of really about these poor people at the bottom of the ladder, desperate, poverty-stricken people who have to resort to killing or fucking or thieving just to get by. And so, you know, it's also a musical. So it's teeth and tits. <laughs> Step all change. Let's take it from bar 19, darling. Uh, oh, and I forgot to say that uh, Mac has a girlfriend who is a sex worker. Her name is uh, Pirate Jenny. And in the production I did at Studio 54, she was played by the amazing Cindy Lopper. I love Cindy Lopper. I just love her. I remember the first day of rehearsals. It's always a bit awkward, you know, first day of school and people don't really know each other. And at lunchtime, I remember I was like, oh, you know, should I, are we all, am I going to order something in or am I going to go out? Will I ask people to come to lunch with me? It's all, you know, that weird sort of awkward first day thing. So I went out and just had lunch on my own and blah, blah, blah. And I came back and Cindy Lupper was sort of sitting in the, in the rehearsal room on her own. And she had this little sort of tray of sushi in front of her. She's forlornly eating her sushi. I was like, oh, you decided to stay in, Cindy Lopper. And she said, um, yeah, I ordered sushi. I mean, what was it like? And she went, well, you know, the guy looked clean. <laughs> the last time I saw Cindy Lopper was at a gala in New York City where I was getting an award. So I decided I'd uh, call her up and take her on a wee walk down memory lane. Three Penny was a very odd 
thing. It was radical. That's good, right?、Mm-hmm. We had that young man who was playing、uh, a woman, but it was a young man. We had、um, we had the boys that well, it was almost like Peter Pan and the Bad Boys, you know.、Mm, um, gang, the gang, his gang were a mixture of drag queens that I knew from. You know, yeah. Hey, now、Patty. girls just want to have fun, and right, yeah, yeah. and and they're using all your videos, yeah, and flotilla, <clears throat> yeah. But the the show was people were really in the audience, very messed up because it was a, it was sort of a, I mean I don't know ahead of its time, but it was not it was interesting. I think Broadway was a different place then in terms of the the range of things you could see on Broadway at the time. It was very much the, when the Disneyfication of Broadway was at its height, like. I remember going to the stage door and meeting people afterwards, you know, and they say, "Oh, last night we saw Tarzan. Tomorrow night we're seeing Little Mermaid." And I was like, "Oh, what do you make of this then?" Because we it was a really quite avant-garde sort of show, and I just think there wasn't a place for it on Broadway at the time. And the the thing that really got people was that we didn't、uh, do a curtain call. That at the end, everyone off, pissed them off. And Jim, Jim Dale, he used to say every night we would walk. Through the audience, we would not look at them. That was our job. No looking. Go straight. Walk out of the theater. It was like, you like the show? Go fuck yourself. <laughs> Excuse me. Are you <laughs>、yeah. allowed to say that? But anyway. Yes.、Um, yes. Yeah. It was like a big fuck you. And yeah, Jim would always say as we were walking under, you know, under his breath, go. Well, aside from the second act, Mrs. Lincoln, what would you think of the play? <laughs> you know, <laughs> be like, oh my god, you know. It was in, it was sort of like a thing, you know, Brecht, the alienation of Brecht. You want to remind the audience that they're in the theatre and not let them get too involved. That was his whole kind of theories. Those that was what Brecht's about. Well, well, well. What do you people mean? People don't understand. I don't understand. Well, Wait, what do you mean? Well, Brecht. Well, there's so Brecht's theories that he had about the theatre was one called alienation, and you've got to sort of constantly alienate the audience. You've got to remind, don't let them get all involved in the story and like not and not remember that they're actually in the theatre watching something. That was one of his big theories. So that's why he that's why he did things like always, you know, announce the scenes and sort of made it like these people are performing these roles and and so in a way the thing that we did of uh, of. Um, Not doing a curtain call was this sort of、uh, an example of that to alienate the audience.、It、certainly did alienate the audience. Oh, okay. To remind, yeah, yeah. So we, to, and because basically what he wanted to do was to say, because basically Brecht says to the to the to the audience, "You're shits for even coming. You're the bourgeoisie for even coming to the theatre in the first place." So the thing about not having a curtain call was to say, "Yes, you should be angry. Why are you are you angry? Because you don't get to clap. How about being angry about the plight of the people that you're seeing on on the stage? The story we've just told, and it's a tough." Sure to sing that and, for you.、Uh, anyway, I, I, for, me, for me, it yes, was yes. like two songs and that's right. And mostly it was the talking that made me hoarse. And so I had these exercises. So I sent him. So you yeah. Can... So I was having vocal trouble, and so Cindy said, "Go to my lady." And she's this lady called Katie, who her sort of speciality is helping rock stars who have to kind of do it in big stadiums, you know, and like giving it full pelt every night and. I remember going in the room. It's all pictures like Cindy and Annie Lennox and Bon Jovi. All these people saying, "Thank you so much. You saved my life and my career." All these things like that. And she does this really great、uh, thing, which I still use to this day. Like I, when I do concerts and everything, and whatever my, if I'm even remotely worried about my voice, I do. You pull your tongue out with a paper towel, 
and you do. And Grant, did you know this, Cindy Lopper? Grant calls me Gee. That's my sort of his pet name for me because of Gee Hee Hee. Because I do, I because you do these sounds going Gee Hee Hee Gee Hee Hee. So what you do is, I've got a paper towel here. You kind of, well, you spit on it or moisten it with your own saliva. Then you put it on your tongue, pull your tongue, pull your tongue out, and do gee hee hee gee hee hee up the scale gee hee hee gee hee hee gee hee hee gee hee hee gee hee hee. Because basically, when you're hoarse, I think this is the theory anyway, it just means that the uh, your tongue is too tightly wound round the bone at the top of your throat. So that's what it is. So you've got to kind of loosen your tongue and let it all, uh, uh, you know, um, be all loose and lovely again. And then you can sing. It's, it's, it's a miracle. Hello there. This is my friend Joe. Hi. Now, Joe plays rugby for England. Yeah, what's your point? Come on. Well, Joe presents a podcast and it's my firm belief that you should listen to it. Very interesting. And here's why. Because it's not actually a rugby podcast because, well, let's face it, there's billions of them already. No, 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 no. It's about you, the listener, and the jobs you do. If you're a teacher, an astronaut, a tree surgeon or a chef, then we've got loads of questions for you. The Joe Marler Show. Because... Everyone is interesting if you ask the right questions. That's a great line. That's a that is a very good line from you, Tom. Thank you, Joe. You want to find it? Search for the Joe Marler Show in your podcast app. Because everyone is interesting if you ask the right questions. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. During the course of the run, we did it for a few months, uh, Cindy Lopper and I became fast friends. We had such a hoot. We used to go out all the time. It was me, Cindy Lopper, my husband Grant, uh, he wasn't my husband at the time actually, and my um, security driver guy, Carmine. The four of us were like a posse. And we went out and partied. There was a magazine in New York, a gay sort of what's on magazine called HX. And they said... There's a new drinking game in town. If you see Alan Cumming and Cindy Lauper in a gay bar in New York City, have a shot. You'll be drunk in no time. <laughs> anyway, in spite of the fact that Cindy Lauper is this Grammy, Emmy, now she's a Tony winning superstar, she'd never done a play before. And so she didn't kind of know a lot of the things, the rules and the sort of the mores of the theatre. So I kind of took her under my wing and helped her out and, and and afterwards she told me that she she felt like a little kitten and that I was sort of uh, helping this little kitten around so now I call her kitten and I call her Cindy Lauper of course but in my tender moments I call her kitten just recently I I got this award in New York from the Roundabout Theatre and um, Cindy Lauper performed at it and she at the gala thing 
and she sang my favorite Cindy Lauper song and she brought me on stage to sing it with her. It was like crazy. It was That's so good. great. I was like, because also, first of all, I thought, I saw she was coming into the audience and I, and I, I thought, is she coming to get me? Is she looking? And I could see you looking around. And at one point you went, where the fuck is he? And then and I know. I, I said, yes, mom, again. <laughs> yes, yeah. you did. Yes. So I went, I'm here, Cindy yeah. Lopper, I'm here. And then so we went, went <laughs> up oh on stage God. and we sang, oh my God. Shine. Did you just hear that? He calls me Cindy Lopper. Yes, I do. I call her Cindy Lopper. He Lopper doesn't all the time. call me Cindy. Call... He calls me Cindy No. Lopper. Yeah, Yeah, she will forever be Cindy Lauper to me. The song we're talking about is called Shine, and I just adore it. So much so that when I first came to do a a concert show of my own, I opened the show with that very song. Cindy Lauper and I actually had met uh, a couple of years prior to the Three Penny Opera. And the night in which we met, it was a gala. And it was really actually a huge night for me. I had a big breakthrough uh, because I sang as myself for the first time. Well, certainly in, in, in such a public, high-profile way. Because, you know, it's different when you sing as yourself to singing as a character. When you're in character, you have the sort of the veil of the character between you and the audience. And it's a big leap to just singing in your own voice as yourself. And I took years to be able to do it. And that night I did. And here I am. This is the recording from that night of me singing. Well, we met at that Sondheim gala. Uh, oh, remember that? God. Where, oh, that was, it was I like made a Stephen mistake. Sondheim. I was trying to... I was very nervous yeah. because Joe, Joe brought me in. Oh, Joe Mantello, the director. He, yes, yes. So he brought me and I learned this thing with Stephen Gabori, the piano player. He's so excellent. And we did Anyone Can Anyone Whistle. Anyone Can Whistle. And it was fabulous. I played it on my tin whistle. And then I made a big, a big mistake. And then I said, apparently not, you know. And <laughs> finally, I, I and, know everyone could whistle. And yes. they, uh, <laughs> and then when I went and spoke to uh, Mr. Sondheim, I said, you know, I'm such a fan. And uh, when I was listening to your work, I heard so much of um, Copeland in it and you know Appalachian Spring and then he said to me oh that's why the dirge <laughs> and I was like Ouch. I was like Burned by Sondheim. okay so he hates me so sorry Joe I didn't do so well you know actually one of those people that night Donna Murphy it was, it was his 75th <gasps> birthday Donna or something. Murphy how great Donna is Murphy. Donna Murphy she was amazing she made a mistake too she sang Children Will Listen she forgot the words everyone was forgetting things it was well, like one of those things where you just Mandy rehearse at that oh he always awesome. remembers the words no it's yes. not that he was just awesome <laughs> and he always is awesome He's fantastic. It's you insane, know. his voice. It's like, it's like an alien. It's great. I remember uh, Donna Murphy said, I said, gosh, you know, we're such an honor. We're at Stephen Sondheim's. And I, I was like, I didn't do things like that then. I was terrified. And it was his 75th birthday. I said, oh, gosh. And she went, oh, darling, don't worry. We'll be here in five years' time for his 80th. And it's true that there's always these. Now he's just turned 90. It seems that every time you blink, there's another huge gala for Stephen he Sondheim's birthday. What do you mean? He turned 90? He just turned 90. Because oh, that was 15 years, at least 15 years oh, ago. Oh, what the hell's happening to us? That was wow. two. Th- I, well, you know, we're staying young and oh, gorgeous. Yeah. 
So miraculously, we were nominated for a Tony Award for Best Revival of a Musical. <laughs> I say miraculously because, you know, we weren't a very popular show. I think the real reason we were nominated is because that season on Broadway, there were only three musical revivals in total. So it would have been really awful if they'd missed us out. <laughs> so that meant we had to perform at the Tony Awards at Radio City Musical, which I have to tell you is utterly, utterly terrifying. I'd done it before, a few years earlier, when I was in Cabaret. And I should point out right now that I've only ever done two musicals in the theatre, Cabaret and the Three Penny Opera. So I obviously have a niche. I have a little German Weimar kind of vibe. And you know what? I'm sticking to it. It seems to be working quite well for me. So the reason why it is so terrifying, well, to me at least, is that when you do these award shows, you do a very truncated version of what you do every night in the theatre. It's normally down to about, you know, a palatable three minutes. And because of that, you have to do different choreography. The song is usually cut up into different ways. And I am not a fast study when it comes to singing or dancing. And so anything changing, especially after having done it the same way for months and months and months, is utterly terrifying to me. And when I did cabaret at the Tonys, it was so terrifying because I had this vamp in the theatre, you know, the end, that famous vamp. The one we're using as the theme tune for this show. And I would just keep that vamp going when I was in the theatre until I was ready to sing. But when I did it at Radio City for the, for the Tonys, it was on a click track. Yes, I was singing live, but it was a click track. The orchestra was not live. And so I couldn't just let it go because I would miss it. I would, it would screw it all up. And the thing was, I came on stage and people started to cheer. And I was like, shut up. I want to hear, I want to hear the click track. I'm going to miss it because I'd missed it in rehearsals. So maybe you'd think the next time I performed at the Tonys with the Three Penny Opera, eight years later, it would be easier. No, wrong. It was the same thing. Terrible. The choreography was different. The actual track was faster and a different arrangement. And I only, again, had one bar of the vamp. Here it is. So and then I'm in. You hear that? Ah, oh, it's terrifying. But the thing was, because of me being so nervous, I've never been that nervous as I, I was that night with uh, the Three Penny Opera. My legs were actually shaking in my tight, tight trousers. Everything was shaking, believe me. I don't know if you know this, but there's a theory about car crashes that when you do an opening night or something like the Tonys, the amount of uh, adrenaline that you use and stress that you get is akin to a minor car crash. And I always think about that when I'm about to go on stage, I'm about to open in something. I sort of think, what are you doing this for? Why are you in a car crash? And then you think, well, you know what? The car crash is going to happen anyway. I can't avoid it. I'm in the car crash now. Just enjoy the car crash. So there was, on I went. The thing is, because I was so nervous, my voice got all sort of breathy. And so it actually works quite well. Listen to this. We shared our things together happily. I used my mind and I protected her. She... In addition to performing at the Tonys that year, earlier on in the evening, um, I had to take part in the opening sequence. It was the 60th anniversary of the Tony. So they had 60 stars on these bleachers and you had to go downstairs beneath the stage where there were all these huge big cogs and all these kind of funny big 
platforms and everything because Radio City is massive and it has this thing every year called the Radio City Music Hall Christmas Spectacular, which is epic. And it's got all these kind of funny different stages that come up like at one point the orchestra comes up from the pit the entire orchestra comes up to stage level then moves backwards to the back of the stage and in its place comes guess what an ice rink yes so it's got all this capability for all these platforms and things and all this major machinery downstairs and you always hear these stories about crew members getting injured and everything like that because it's so dangerous and complicated anyway all of us as 60 stars had to go downstairs and and stand on these bleachers it was hilarious it was like Oprah, Julie Andrews, Harry Belafonte. It was crazy. And I was uh, walking down. I was next to Barbara Cook. And uh, Barbara Cook is sadly uh, no longer with us. But she was this uh, huge Broadway legend. She was famous uh, a long time ago for being in The Music Man and Condide. And then later she became a concert performer and a, a huge interpreter of Sondheim songs. By now she was a, 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 a quite an old lady. So I was helping her onto the bleachers. And she said to me, oh, thank you so much, Alan. Do you know, I've been meaning to tell you, I really love, and I thought she was going to say, oh, some film or some you know, show or something I was in. And she said, your fragrance. <laughs> I did not expect to hear that from Barbara Cook. So I sent her some. And then she sent me in return a signed copy of her Live at Carnegie Hall CD, which lives, incidentally, a couple of shelves down from the very gloves we're talking about today on Alan Cummings' shelves. Maybe we'll get to that fragrance in another episode. So there we are. Oprah, Julie Andrews, Harry Belafonte, Glenn Close, Cheetah Rivera, Julia Roberts, Joe Pesci. It's crazy. We're all giggling underneath the stage on the bleachers. I'm standing on the top uh, level of the bleachers next to Stanley Tucci. And we're laughing like drains. So what was going to happen was on stage at the opening of the Tories was Harry uh, Connick Jr., who that year was in the pyjama game and was nominated. And he was singing, you know, lots of sort of uh, there's no business like show business and all these kind of songs, but in his sort of jazzy New Orleans way. And what I had discovered as I knew someone in the show with him, he was drugged up like crazy because he'd pulled a disc in his spine or something and he was in such pain. So he was totally out of it on painkillers. Poor Harry. And then he has to open the Tonys and be all jazzy. So he's singing that because I was on the top row of the bleachers. Can you imagine? So it's like the roof opens and then you start to go up, but it feels like the audience of Radio City is dropping from the skies down towards you. And then, of course, you see a, a highly medicated Harry Connick Jr. doing a jazzy version of There's No Business Like Show Business. It was absolutely mental. Incidentally, I'd met Harry a few years before because he came to audition for Design for Living as a play by Noel Coward, which I was, which I did on Broadway in 2001. He uh, auditioned for the for the other guy's role in it opposite me. Sadly, he didn't get it. But instead, because I would have had to make out with Harry Connick Jr. every night for several months, something that I would have liked to have done very much indeed. Instead, I made out with Dominic West, which was, you know, sloppy seconds. And every time I see Dominic West... People say, oh, how do you two know each other? Have you worked together? And Dominic always says, oh, yes, you know, Alan and I made out together every night for three months. <laughs> Memorable one night in the dark. We finished, we'd made out, we finished the scene. And, we, and all the scenery moved and we had to be pulled off stage and get into a quick change. And one night Dom turned to me and went, you know, I rather enjoyed that tonight. <laughs> you know, um... Looking at these gloves again and talking to Cindy Lauper has made me think a lot about our production of the Three Penny Opera 
And I think perhaps that because when we did it, it was the very zenith of the Disneyfication of Broadway. When audiences associated coming to see theatre in New York with musical versions of Disney films like Tarzan and The Little Mermaid. And there just wasn't a place then on Broadway for the Three Penny Opera and certainly not for our rather outre production of it. But, you know, Broadway has changed for sure. I mean, if you look at the last few years, uh, the the winning best musicals, for example, Fun Home a couple of years ago, that's a a show set in a funeral home uh, about lesbianism, kind of. Hamilton, you know, which blends hip hop and rap with a historical story and also colorblind casting all over the place. Love it. The band's visits one a couple of years ago. That's based on an Israeli film about a brass band going to. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 an interesting and different place. And the last season, Slave Play by Jeremy O'Hara, who I did another of his plays called Daddy. So things are different than they were, you know, what, 15 years or so ago. But two things have made me sad today. You know, talking about my gloves and talking to Cindy Lauper. First of all, the fact that the bisexuality and, uh, and the pansexuality that we were representing in our production was so sort of sensational and kind of revolutionary uh, on Broadway then. Um, and I think it you know, perhaps made it too difficult for people to focus on what we were really trying to do. It kind of obfuscated the points of uh, Brecht. I think that that saddens me because I thought, you know, we were a little more progressive and a little more evolved than that. And we obviously weren't, or at least Broadway wasn't. And then also the whole curtain call thing. The fact that we didn't let the audience become an active part of the evening. They wanted to stand and cheer. That has become a part of what you do when you go to Broadway. It's part of the experience. It's expected. And it's not like that in other countries. Not, not in London and the West End. You don't, audiences don't always think they're going to stand up and cheer there. And certainly not in Scotland either. Um, and I, I am not sad that we did not let the audience do that. I'm sad that their reaction at not being able to do it was anger and just being really pissed off and frustrated and not understanding what the point of it was that, you know, we were doing it for a reason to try and make them think about the show and about the point of the whole thing and what Brecht was trying to do. I wonder, and I hope that now in this more diverse and uh, frankly to me, much more interesting era of Broadway, audiences will be more predisposed to understanding and appreciating the challenge they face in our version by not getting that catharsis of stomping and cheering and standing. I hope Broadway might be ready to accept Bertolt Brecht again, because it's been a while. He's one of the great European playwrights, and he is so rarely performed in America. So now it's time for my gloves to go back to their place on my shelves. They go back to being crinkly and dried up and yellowy. But I always know I'll be able to go and revive them and remember all these things we've been talking about today. Please join me next time for another rumination on one of the objects on Alan Cummings' shelves. Alan Cummings' shelves is hosted by me, Alan Cumming. 
And Jack Claremont is my predator. Now, a predator, for those of you who don't know, is a mixture of a producer and an editor. There's nothing weird or wrong about it, okay, people? That's Jack. He's the predator. And it is part of the Crowd Network. Another Crowd podcast to check out is... We Didn't Start the Fire. It's a history podcast inspired by the lyrics of Billy Joel. It's the story of the post-war world and helps explain why the world today is the way it is. There are episodes about Marilyn Monroe, Marlon Brando, South Pacific, The King and I, James Dean, Elvis, Disneyland, Brigitte Bardot and a lot more. Just search for We Didn't Start the Fire in your podcast app. <laughs> 